Well, good morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, find 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, we've been working our way verse by verse, section by section, through Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, his first letter, and we're going to be going to the second letter here in a few weeks, letting the Word of God set uh, the pace and set the priority for us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we'll read from verse 1 to 11. The Word of God says, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. This is the word of God. What, what do these three dates have in common? You can write these down if you need to think about them, but October of 1914, New Year's Day of 2000, and December 21st, 2012. So that's October of 1914, New Year's Day of 2000, and October the 21st, 2012. Well, we may not have a full guess on some of these, but all three dates were predicted to be the end of the world. And good news, we're still here, right? Those were all, all three got it wrong. October of 1914 was a prediction made by a guy named Charles Taze Russell who founded the Jehovah's Witnesses, and he quickly adjusted his prediction, as I would have too, right, as 1914 came and went, and, and the outbreak of World War II, and his teaching has sort of shifted uh, over the years into what we see as the modern uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, New Year's Day 2000, some of you remember Y2K, right? It was all the rage two decades ago, and Folks were thinking that the world was going to crash, computers and whole nations were going to crumble because they were going to have to go from 1999 to 2000. Folks jumped all over it. 2000 has came and went, right? And without much issue, except as I was researching this, they spent $308 billion to remedy the issue. 
That's, that's, a, that's a big deal, right? $308 billion with a B dollars to make sure the clocks were going to continue forward, right? And finally, there was December 21st, 2012. Many of us remember there was this big prediction, the Mayan calendar, right? All kinds of things were going to happen, and the world was going to end, <laughs> And this is just the tip of the iceberg. I, I got to read all kinds of false predictions uh, this week. You can go, there's a whole Wikipedia page about it uh, if you're ever curious. And, and it's just the tip of the iceberg of these end of days predictions. But it does teach us something very important. It tells us that everyone has what's called an eschatology. Now, that's, that's a big word that simply means the study of the end. Eschaton is Greek. For end and ology, the study of. So everyone, even the most secular person, has something in their mind that's going to end it all. Consider how even the most secular scientists have threatened for decades of imminent global destruction. And it doesn't require a belief in God to have a sort of imminent end of days eschatology. Everyone has to give some consideration to the end of all things. And what we believe about the end ultimately impacts how we live today. And this is actually Paul's point for us in our passage this morning. Last week in chapter 4, uh, we looked at Paul's teaching about Jesus, his second coming, and the end of the world. And now this section of chapter 5 is basically a so what. <laughs> How am I to live now in light of Jesus coming again? And before we dive into chapter 5, I want to recap a little bit of last week. And I'd encourage you, if you get time this week, the sermon's on the website. And go listen to it if any of this is interesting to you. But last week we said we needed to avoid being two kinds of people when it came to talking about the end of days. We wanted to avoid being this guy who is Mr. Fanatic. You either are friends with this guy on Facebook, related to this guy, or if you don't know him, you might be this guy, right? They, they have their charts and their Bible. They're reading the New York Times and, and the Bible next to each other and trying to fit all of these together. And, and, and the, the, the good side of what we see here is they definitely have a, a sense that Jesus is coming and they take it seriously, even if they often let misinformation drive them to misunderstand what God has made clear in his words. We want to avoid being Mr. Fanatic, don't we? And we also talked about a person named Mr. Fearful who gets a picture this week. Mr. Fearful there gets a picture, right? We want to be careful that we don't allow this whole thing to lead us to fear when the second coming is meant to produce hope in us, not fear. And Paul opens up for us exactly what would mark the end of the world. We saw last week in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, that at the end of time, Jesus is going to bodily return to earth in a spectacular way. He's going to resurrect the dead, catch away those who are alive, and bring us to forever be with the Lord. And the whole point of it, what concluded chapter 4 and what concludes our section in chapter 5, verse 11, is this. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. The goal of this should be to encourage and to build up, not to cause you to live in fear or to live in fanaticism, but 
At this point, so many people want more. So many people want to go, I'm going to call the pastor this week and ask him what he thinks about this, X, Y, and Z. And, and there is a natural curiosity about the specific details, right? We all want to know when. We all want to know, can we know when it's getting close? And, and it's this curiosity that the Holy Spirit speaks to. While the Bible has more to say about Jesus' second coming and the end of times than First and Second Thessalonians talk about, it doesn't answer all of your questions. In fact, most of what the Bible gives us is primarily practical, how we're to live, rather than what exactly is going to happen. Here's your main idea you'll see in your notes on the back of your bulletin today. Here's the main idea. We're not called to know when Jesus will return, but we are called to live today in light of his return. We're not called to know when Jesus is going to return, but we are called to live today in light of his return. And the Holy Spirit wants to teach us this main idea through two foundational truths before giving us four ways to live in light of these truths. So here's your two foundational truths. First, that Jesus will come at an unknown time. Jesus will come at an unknown time. Notice verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need for anything to be written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So Paul's continuing his discussion about the second coming of Jesus. And he calls it the day of the Lord. This is a phrase that the Old Testament prophets love to use to describe the time when God would judge the disobedient and rescue the faithful. And he says that the day of the Lord is going to come at an unknown time like a thief breaking into a house. No good thief is going to leave you a nice little note on the door with, like, with a date and time of them showing up, right? They're not going to give you tons of signs they're coming. They may be scoping out your house, but they don't want you to know about it. The key is to come at an unknown time. And in fact, Paul said to the, Thessal uh, to the believers in Thessalonica that he had no need to write to them because they should be fully aware that his coming would be at an unknown time. Paul had likely taught them this while he was with them, but Paul's also pulling directly out of the teachings of Jesus. Paul isn't just pulling this out of his head with his own creativity. He is drawing from what Jesus had said about these things. So hold your place. In 1 Thessalonians 5, we'll be back and look over at Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus starts to teach about these things. And Jesus, in Matthew 24 and 25, is, is answering questions his disciples brought to him. And they brought him a threefold question at the very start. They said, hey, Jesus... When's the temple going to be destroyed? When are you going to come? And when's going to be the end of the age? And it's in the middle of a very complex discussion. There's a lot of very complex things in these two chapters. And anybody who tells you they've got it fully figured out, I, I don't think they've quite got how complicated what he says here is. But something he is clear about is this. Matthew 24, verse 36. This is very clear. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Jesus tells us that no one, not even him as the God-man, 
will know when the return will be. He says, you're not going to know the day or the hour. And friends, that means even the month, the year, or even the general season. And it certainly means that, that, that if you have somebody, whether you see them on YouTube or maybe you see them speaking at another church and they come going, I know when it's coming, you can point there and go, I, I, I'm sorry, man. I, I, I'm going to go with Jesus on this one, right? His coming is at an unknown time, not a time we can calculate and not a time God's going to reveal. Remember a few weeks ago when we were in 1 Thessalonians 4, we had talked about there's two buckets, right? There's God's secret will, which belongs only to him. And then there's God's revealed will, which belongs to us. Well, the timing of his coming goes in the secret will bucket, but how we're to live in light of that goes into the revealed will bucket. And just as a side note, this verse in Matthew 24 often trips a lot of people up because if Jesus is God, and he is, shouldn't he know this? Shouldn't he know when his coming's going to be? I mean, it, it's, a, it's a pretty simple equation, right? God knows everything. Jesus is God. And so Jesus doesn't know the timing of his own return. But we need to remember, just as a, a little excursus, this is a little side note here, that Jesus, yes, 100% God, but when he became man and lived a fully human life, the Bible speaks of him having, having given up or veiled some of his divine privileges for a time so that he could live just like one of us, so that he could walk on earth. And so in order for Jesus to live like us, he chose to have this knowledge kept from him during his earthly ministry so that he could live in our place and live without sin. So Jesus told us that his coming would be in an unknown time. And he even uses this language of a thief in the night. Look at verse 43 of Matthew 24. Look at this. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. So Jesus himself, Paul's just pulling right out of what Jesus says, going, hey, the times and the seasons, the day and the hour, the time of his return is going to be unknown to us. Jesus is going to come in an unknown time. And then verse 44 actually gets us to our second foundational truth. Look at verse 44. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus is coming at an unknown time and Jesus is coming at an unexpected time. At an unexpected time. It's not just at an hour we don't know, but he says even at an hour we're not going to expect. Again, hold your place in Matthew 24. We're going to look back at it and look back at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And look what, look what Paul tells us here. He says, 1 Thessalonians 5, 3, While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Moms can understand the analogy that Paul's using here. You might know the baby's coming, but those labor pains will come upon you at the worst time in the most unexpected places, right? Some of you may even have real interesting stories of, well, I was just, I was at this really inconvenient spot, and boom, the baby was ready to come right there, right? And he gives this idea of an unexpected time and an unexpected place. Jesus illustrated this reality by comparing it to Noah's flood. Matthew 24, verse 37. Look at this. Look what he says. 
For as were in the days of Noah, so it will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving, and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be at the grinding mill, one taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. And he says, like the flood came unexpected and caught people being married and given in marriage, celebrating and working hard. They were caught unaware, swept away, and unprepared. And he says, Jesus' coming will be unexpected and will catch many of us in the same way. He will come and find many of us unaware and unprepared. And Paul's whole emphasis is on preparing us, centering our attention on how to live when we don't know when he's coming. What are we to do, not when is he to come? And so the the question we'll consider is how to live in light of his coming, how to live in light of Jesus's return. And here's what he says first. Paul says, walk in light, don't hide in darkness. How to live in light of his coming, walk in light, don't hide in darkness. First Thessalonians chapter 5, look at this, verse 4. But you were not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. See, the Holy Spirit has such a different perspective for us because For many of us, the thought of the end of the world prompts us to hide in darkness. But Paul says, rather, walk in light. He wants to remind believers of who we are, that we are not of the darkness, but of the light. Paul's speaking in moral terms here of a moral darkness and a moral light. And he says that we, as followers of the light of the world, are in a whole different sphere from the lost world that dwells in darkness. And we must be reminded that darkness and light simply do not mix. And that the call of the second coming is one of hope, yes, but also one of holiness. Look how first John puts it. John writes this. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie And do not practice the truth. In other words, he says, light and darkness don't mix. We are not meant to live like the world. When the light comes on, the darkness scatters and flees to the shadows. We're meant to live differently than the world does. And to prepare for Jesus' second coming is meant to to have us to think and to live differently than the world does. To live with God's priorities and according to God's precepts. And a place I think this starts is with your Sunday. Let me say this. Let me say this. There's a lot more to being a Christian than going to church. There's a lot more to walking in light than going to church. But if we're unwilling to do the minimum God asks of us, why do we think we're going to do the more difficult things down the road? The challenge of this text is to make our everyday look different than the world, but 
if we're not willing to make one day look different, why do we think we're going to do something different the other six? The challenge would be to gather for worship, spend time with God's people in his word, invite folks over, go to youth and kids on Sunday afternoon, get involved and serve. And friends, if we're unwilling to do that, why do we think we're going to do more, particularly as the culture presses in and makes it a lot less popular to be a believer and to be a Christian in our world? We should prepare for his coming by walking in light, living in a unique way from the world around us. He says, second, don't just walk in light. He says, stay sober, don't slumber. Stay sober, don't slumber. Look at verse 6. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Friends, there are a number of warnings here. And he uses this picture of staying awake, staying sober, staying alert. And he says, hey, don't let the world lure you to sleep. And don't let the world lure you to hopelessness. You have a 24-hour news cycle that is nothing but discouragement. I don't know if you've turned it on recently. There ain't a lot of good news in the world, and there's really not a lot of good news in that social media feed you're swiping on through, is there? And he says, the moment that we begin to believe that the world is nothing but bad news and that Jesus is not king of the world and that his gospel is not power to save, powerful to save, we have been lured to sleep and hopelessness. And he says, stay awake, stay sober, stay focused. The world want, is threatening to get you drunk on bad news and on politics and on just about anything you see on TikTok. And friends, it will keep you from a sober mind, from spiritual sobriety. But friends, the world is pressing in with that. But there, there's a force inside the walls of the church that would love to make us drunk and spiritually asleep. And that, friends, is the drug of consumerism. And consumerism will kill you. And it will kill this church and any church because if we come with a mindset of what we can get rather than a mindset of how we can serve, we will fall into spiritual slumber and darkness. Friends, let me tell you this. I fear that the spirit of slumber has fallen on many churches in our area. And don't begin to think that it might happen to the church down the road but not happen here. Don't begin to think that it only happens over there at those other churches, but it would never happen here because God's word is an alarm clock screaming to us to wake up, to be awake and alert, to be alive and sober-minded. So many of us, when we think about the end of the world, we think hunker down and hide, but Jesus says, press forward and continue. He even uses the language of a soldier putting on armor. 
He says, hey, put on the breastplate of love and faith, the helmet of salvation. Soldiers in war have got to stay sober, and we need to remember and to remain sober and to get ready for spiritual war. See, the Bible describes that every day we are in a spiritual warfare, and frankly, some of us are sleeping on the sidelines and really concerned about our own comforts rather than that the forces of darkness would love to lure you very quietly and easily to sleep. See, that, here's the thing. So many of us think of the demonic and the evil, and we think about the movies, don't we, of this really obvious evil thing popping in and, and making an appearance. But let me tell you, Satan's a lot more cunning than to show up looking like Satan. He would love to just pop in and, and sing you a nice little lullaby and lay you down and let you sleep. As long as you're of no threat to him and of no work for God, he would love to let you just wander off. So we need to be careful and we need to stay sober and not be in, in a spiritual slumber. He says, third, that in light of the second coming, we need to live for Jesus. Don't panic about the future. Live for Jesus. Don't panic about the future. Look at verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Friends, when we think about the second coming, many of us are tempted to panic. But the Holy Spirit calls you to peace. But as God's people, we have nothing to fear or panic when it comes to the end. Rather than panic about the future, we are called to live for Jesus in the present. Because God wants to liberate you from worry about the future. Because here's what verse 9 tells us. It tells us that no matter what road you're on, your road never ends in God's wrath if you are in Jesus. It does end in salvation in the end. If you are in Jesus and he is your Lord and your Savior, there may be all kinds of, of windy roads ahead of you. And God hasn't always given us the step-by-step -step directions, but he does tell us where we're going. He does tell us where it ends. And he tells us on the road what priorities to keep. Verse 10, he said, whether we're awake or asleep, alive or dead, in season, out of season. He says, we live with him, and that means we live for him. In light of Jesus coming in the end of all things, he wants us to consider, what are we living for? What are we giving our lives toward that truly makes an impact? What are we fueling our lives with as we get up and go throughout our day? What's the fuel for our darkest moments? Whose approval are we living for? Whose joy, whose glory, what consumes our lives and attention, our loves and our hopes? Friends, all of that is meant to be Jesus. He is meant to be what fuels us as we live for him and to fuel how we live as we wait to live with him forever. And he closes forth and finally with this. How are we to live in light of the fact that Jesus is returning we encourage one another. We don't live in fear. We encourage one another. We don't live in fear. Look at verse 11 again. He closes the same place he did 
chapter 4. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Friends, hear me. There are many scary things in this world. But in Christ, we have nothing to fear. The news of Jesus coming isn't meant to produce fear in us, but rather encouragement and hope. It's meant to build us up and change how we live. It's meant to be a reality we share with others. When was the last time you knew of somebody in this faith family struggling with something and you just simply said, take heart, Jesus is coming again. Take heart, this moment is not forever. Take heart, Jesus is ruling and reigning over all things. In fact, there's evidence that in the early church, Believers would greet one another with the phrase Maranatha, which means is a prayer saying, Lord, come. It can mean that the Lord has come and a prayer that the Lord would come. And Paul actually ends his letter to the Corinthians with this phrase. And it is meant to encourage believers who are in the midst of suffering and persecution that in the end, Jesus wins. Let me tell you something. The Roman Empire didn't win. The culture doesn't win. The rich and powerful do not win. But King Jesus wins. Whatever might be looming over your life, Jesus wins. And friends, everyone has an eschatology. Some of us have an eschatology of despair. We believe that this life is all there is, and because of that future, we eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. (laughs) And life is awful, and we have so much to despair because we want to take everything with us, but we can't. For others, you have an eschatology of fear. So you hunker down and do whatever you can to preserve yourself and your life here. And you ultimately believe by doing that that whatever is coming after the end is actually worse than what you have here. That's why you hang on to this. But God's word offers us an eschatology of hope. That no matter what your day may bring, God's word says that in Jesus, in the end, hear me, COVID will not get the last word. The government will not get the last word. Even the grave doesn't get the last word. But the risen and reigning Son of God, He gets the last word. And here's what His last word is. Revelation 21.5. Look what it says. And He who is seated on the throne, here's what He said. Behold, I am making all things new. When your life, when you think about the end of the world, or the end of your own life, what fills your mind? Fear, anxiety, uncertainty. Jesus has come to give you hope for the future. Because of what Jesus did in his sinless life, his death on the cross in our place, and his resurrection from the dead, he says, you don't have to fear wrath on the last day. That Jesus will make you new just as he promises to make all things everywhere new. And that by placing your faith in Jesus, verse 9 and 10 of this chapter can be true for you. That God has not destined you for wrath, but rather to obtain salvation that you might live with him. 
And if you don't have that confidence today, you can, you can receive it right where you are by calling on Jesus. Or maybe you have questions. We'd love to talk with you today. And we would love to obey verse 11 and encourage you and build you up in the hope that Jesus alone provides. But friends, hear this. Jesus's return changes everything. It's not just meant to be something that's off in the distance. It's meant to change how you live today. He's coming at an unknown and unexpected time while people are saying peace and security, while they're marrying and giving in marriage, while they're at the Cracker Barrel eating and enjoying life, while they're just going about their business. And it changes everything because it tells us that eternity awaits, and that means that the present is eternally important. We may not know when. You may not have all your questions answered about how, but God has not left us unsure about how to live in the present. That we're to walk in light, be sober in our mind, live for the glory of Jesus, and encourage one another that Maranatha, the Lord, is coming again. And may the Lord awaken us from darkness and slumber to walk with him in light and obedience. Let's stand and let's pray together. Father God, we're not meant to know the times or the seasons that you have fixed for us. But we are meant to know how to live in light of the fact that the day is coming, a great day of, yes, rescue for your, for your people and destruction for the world and one where you will make all things new. And Lord, may the imminence, the, the unknown and unexpectedness of that cause us to live with full abandon for you today. Walking in light rather than in darkness, not, not hiding away because we're fearful of the world or of your coming, but press forward in faith and hope. Lord, may we stay sober as the world and even forces within the church would love to lull us to sleep. May we see that we're in a spiritual war and a spiritual battle that you've allowed us to be able to win through setting our hopes and affections on you and through the power of the Spirit. And Lord, may we live for you because we know that we will live with you forever. And may we encourage one another because this is meant to be encouraging news that you're coming again to make all things new. And if there be any within the sound of my voice who do not know you, do not have that hope, may they plead with you today, confess that they're a sinner and look to you in hope of salvation and newness of life. I ask that you'd be honored as we sing to you and make much of you, knowing that it is just a, a tiny picture of what eternity with you will look like. And we do pray, along with the Apostle Paul, come, Lord Jesus, come. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.
Some of y'all remember. And it was just sitting on top of a book set there. And I was reminded incredibly then of the legacy of faith that is here. (laughs) And was encouraged uh, this week to be a part of that. So just wanted to put that just in your mind there to think, one, of how long 07 was. And to also think about the incredible legacy of faith that is here in this body. And second, I, I would encourage you, I know we've got several folks visiting with us or that are semi-new to me. We've got these connect cards out at the table. I encourage you to fill one out, leave it with us. You can also fill it out online on our website. It just gives us a record of your visit, lets us know we can pray for you. We've got a gift for you uh, if you fill that out. And we will send you info about our Discover class in November because we really think it's important to be a part of that and to come be with that on November the 14th here, whether you're brand new with us or you want a kind of a refresher of who we are, I really want you to be there and to be a part of that. And we'll have lunch for you on that Sunday after the service. So uh, we'll close this service with a benediction, a blessing from God's word. This from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 
Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen.